Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. It's 40 years since the standalone single Ego was released and this episode is an attempt to get underneath that song and to understand where it came from. These 40th and 50th anniversary episodes, it's like switching between alternate realities. Episode 14 was a 50 year anniversary show and I left Elton dealing with the failure of his debut single and about to practically sleepwalk into a very hasty wedding. That Elton, about to turn 21, is lost and lacking direction. He won't get to release another record until January next year. Nearly 31 year old Elton is also at a bit of a crossroads. He last featured in our episode four, really retiring from live performance and looking at an uncertain future. He'd lost his momentum in the charts with Blue Moves. He didn't have a proper hit in 77. Greatest Hits 2 hadn't matched Greatest Hits 1 and he'd thrown a lot of time and money at Rocket Records to very little effect. He also didn't know what his own music was meant to sound like anymore. John Reed, for his part, had been focusing more on the other artist on his roster, Queen, from Elton's perspective at least. Elton had become estranged from him, from Gus Dudgeon, from his new band and of course from Bernie as well. In October of 77, the double-A side We Will Rock You, We Are The Champions was released. That release, such a commercial and creative success, must have been particularly stinging for Elton. I'm talking over a BBC session version of We Will Rock You, incidentally. Elton was spending a lot of time in the States. On the 1st of October, he'd been honoured in the Madison Square Garden Hall of Fame, the first non-sportsman to make it there. On the 11th, he held a private party at Studio 54, which is where he met Andy Warhol for the first time. Andy said this in his diary about the night. The photographers were there and wanted Elton and me to pose for pictures together, so I asked Elton if I could kiss him, but he didn't answer me, so I didn't. Maybe he didn't hear me. He was wearing a hat because of his hair transplant, and it was Warhol who would introduce Elton to Vance Buck sometime in the next few months. Elton played an impromptu gig at Sam Goody's, a record shop in New York, on the 12th of October, where he and Bernie had been signing copies of the new Greatest Hits album. Late that night, Elton got a transatlantic call from John Reed, who told him that he'd signed his severance from Queen. Plans were quickly put in place to get Elton back into the studio. Elton's thoughts turned to a song that he'd demoed earlier that year, the only thing he'd written with Gary Osborne at that stage, Shine On Through. Elton had an idea of the sound that he wanted for his next project and who he wanted to produce it. Elton wanted to make some good creative decisions and to let the music do the talking. Before all that though, in the last week of October, against his own better judgement, Elton donned the feathery get-up one more time, as well as a horrendously tight rhinestone-encrusted shocking pink all-in-one disaster of an outfit and recorded his episode of The Muppet Show back in the UK at Elstree Studios. There's a wonderful lady that uh, I've always wanted to work with and sing with. So will you please give a great reception to the fantastic Miss Piggy! Oh, 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 thank you! Kissy, kissy, kissy to you all! Oh, Elton, have you 
been waiting long, Poopsie. It seems like an eternity. Of course it does. Ready? One week later, the rehearsals with China just round the M25 at Shepperton Studios were drawing to a close. Elton was pulling on his moody black leather jacket for the Wembley pool gig. This Elton, sad about the death of Elvis in August, devastated by the death of Mark Bolan in September, was concealing his hair transplant under a series of hats against his doctor's orders and he was starting to feel his 30 years. He was also starting to feel the machinery chugging and whirring underneath him again, and he opted to get off the train, turning his back on John Reed, who was stoking the boiler. I've got to discuss this whole thing with him, said a flustered John Reed backstage that night. In the interview from Monday the 7th of November 1977, which I featured in episode 4, Elton, back in New York, was looking forward to recording that weekend with Tom Bell in Seattle. This was to be the first time that Elton had gone into a project with his hands bound. Aside from bringing in the songs Shine On Through and the Bernie song Nice and Slow, Elton's only contribution to the recordings was his voice. And even that would be subject to significant comment and coaching from Tom Bell. Of course, Elton didn't really like the results. He declared the mixes too sweet and the plan for a second set of sessions to complete the album was shelved. In the final reckoning, of course, two massive hits would rise out from these recordings, Mama Can't Buy You Love in the US in 79 and Are You Ready For Love much later on in the UK. I'll look these recordings in detail at some point in the future. Back to late 77 though, Elton was lost again. He spent the holiday season behind the gates at Woodside only venturing out to record a version of Shine On Through for the Morecambe and Wise Christmas special, the biggest bit of TV on the BBC on Christmas Day. That my love still shines, shines
That was what I was going to sing on the Walk of My Wife show. It's a good job you didn't. <laughs> well, come on, we better get back to work. The Sex Pistols' first single is aggressively called Anarchy in the UK. But what do they mean by anarchy? Do you mean? Do you mean you actually want to destroy them or you want to... Wipe them out. Uh, he wants to autograph. Complacent, apathetic, old f***ing walk up and down and do nothing and complain about everything. And watch Top of the Pops and send their boring little letters into Melody Maker week after week. That's what I want to get rid of. I actually want to get rid of it, though. Push them out. Destroy them, really. Destroy them one way or another. Not, not violence. <coughs> Elton's first experience of punk had been about a year earlier, listening to this interview which we just heard with the Sex Pistols on Janet Street Porter's London Weekend Show. The show also featured Susie and the Banshees and The Clash. Elton had this to say about the experience. I sat there in my bed in Windsor watching it and I got slagged off by one of them. But it was kind of endearing. God, I thought, you cheeky buggers. Five years ago, It was high-heeled shoes. Now it's safety pins through the nose. The funny thing is, they have all the same things as we have. There's no way they can avoid having their Rolls Royces, their accountants. They'll end up the same as we do. Come January 1978, in People magazine, Elton was showing considerably less affection for the newcomers. I know I have more talent than most of them, he said. I do believe that I could come back any time I want to. I'm fortunate I'm only 30. There's so much time still. And so, on March the 10th, 1978, according to To Be Continued, Elton's comeback began at the Mill Studios in Cookham, Berkshire, with a recording of a single. The Mill was owned by Gus Dudgeon and built by him and Stuart Epps at enormous expense. Apart from Pinball Wizard, this was the first time Elton had recorded in the UK since Madman. It was still estranged from Gus professionally, and so it was the long-time engineer Clive Franks, alongside Epps, who manned the desk. Elton was looking for a new sound, something to define him as the 70s started to look towards the 80s. He chose Ego a song that had started off life during the Blue Move sessions as an instrumental as the A-side of the single and a demo was put down. Take a look at me now, take a taste of the money I'm not in 
The demo's got a nasty hum to it, so it's not a very nice listen. This song, Lovesick, Nice and Slow, and I Cry at Night, were hangover Bernie lyrics from the Blue Moves era. None of them made the album proper. It's ironic that Ego was written music first, with the lyrics then being matched to it by Bernie, as this was a foreshadowing of how Elton and Gary Osborne would end up writing over the next few years. Elton loved the lyric. In promoting the single, he took it as an opportunity to lay into his contemporaries. It's about the Jaggers and Bowies of the world, he said, and especially Mr McCartney. I like most of the stuff the Stones have done, but they're one of the worst live bands I've ever seen. David Bowie is a pseudo-intellectual and I can't bear pseudo-intellectuals. What clothes shall I wear for the next album? Coming to London in a train and giving the Hitler salute? And McCartney's music has gone so far down the tubes, I can't believe it. They all just annoy me. There's a lot of me in there as well. Music is still important, but selling oneself at a price isn't. Once you've attained success, you reach a crossroad and you have to be totally honest. And I feel that's what ego is all about. Elton and Clive got to recruiting some musicians. Tim Rennick had played guitar for Sutherland Brothers and Quiver, who opened for Elton on tour in 1973, as well as session work for Bowie before that. Steve Holly had been playing drums with Kiki D, and he'd go on to play with Wings. Ray Cooper is also there on percussion. Clive Franks found himself on bass by default, although he didn't think much of his contribution. He kept trying to turn himself down. Ego was released 40 years today on the 21st of March, just 11 days after they started recording the song, if you believe what you read. When I play it, feel free to picture Elton sneering and gurning his way through 40 grand's worth of promotional video just under a quarter of a million pounds in today's money. In the video, Elton cuts an unfamiliar figure, foregoing his trademark glasses and crazy costumes, his only nod to flamboyance being a single earring. Don't forget to picture the enormous neon Elton ego signs behind him and the Olympic flame burning cash between them. Then, later on in the song, the hat comes off, revealing some very honest-looking wispy hair, and Elton is sat on his casting couch, auditioning pretty hopefuls of both sexes. And this is all cross-cut with footage of a young Elton graffitiing a train. It's essential viewing, but unfortunately this is just a podcast, so you'll have to find it for yourself on YouTube. Anyway, here's Ego.
here we go again this is a center extraction of the song it's wonderfully clean a testament to how simply it was mixed maybe simplistically it's a whirling ride of a song a trip to the circus a real freak show it's kind of a train song it's got a train whistle at least and it screeches and jerks like a train going over a dodgy junction It smiles with wide, wild eyes like the Rocket logo embodied in song. It's nosebleed music, packed to the rafters with chords. It's been described as queen-like. It's tight and it's technical in the way that some queen music is. It doesn't kick back at any point as queen songs tend to do. Ego stays uptight and vigilant through to the end. This here... The verse, to me, is the hardest, darkest idea of Elton's entire career. He's playing off on the dissonant B-diminished chord and singing some tough, tuneless notes on top. Inflate my ego gently takes him into more melodic territory, into E-flat. But then the diminished character returns when Elton sings, I'm so expressive and... uh, And that flashes us into B major and then to F into B flat and then E flat minor. The end of this long verse section inform the press and so on has got nine chord changes. It's completely dizzying. Next comes a sort of bridge where the song drops down from that G to an F. This is the do you remember section, a moment of reprieve, a little bit of light reminiscing 
using a simple descending melody. Then, finally, after two minutes, comes what must be the chorus of the song, the childish, foolish section, which starts off in C. Again, Elton piles on the chords, loads of fourths again, a chord salad, rising more dramatically this time, ratcheting the song back up into the evil little verse for a final run-through. The rhythmic synth part is now more apparent and there are some pipe-like synth sounds coming in to join it. These synths are described in the to-be-continued liner notes as a Mellotron and a Polymoog. There are clearly two guitar parts here as well, both sounding incredibly dry and unaffected. At the end of the verse thing, in this second run-through, a swirling organ drops in and this picks the song up and takes it round for a demented waltz for six bars. The second, Do You Remember? Just like the first, it's got some spacey filtered synth, along with whatever it is Ray Cooper's playing. It sounds like a vibraphone to me, but it's described in the liner notes as wind chimes. Then, in the last 30 seconds of the song, the tambourine starts up, but it's got to be mixed centrally because we don't get to hear it here in the centre extraction. It's an audacious piece of music, and it's rammed with ideas. You can see why it didn't end up doing too well. It topped out at number 34 on both sides of the Atlantic. For the casual John fan, it's unexpected. It elevates rhythm over melody, and the chorus, while it is a strong one, creeps up on you. It comes so deep into the song that it's likely to fall on rather exhausted ears. The song's got an uncharacteristically aggressive sound and although the lyrics are obviously sarcastic, on the surface it makes Elton come across as a bit of a spoiled brat. I love this song. It's got everything I adore about Elton, but it's like an attention deficit version of it all. It's Elton stalking around on the prowl, angry, flippant and utterly unpredictable. It's Elton on the edge of a tantrum at that moment where it could go either way. It's a distillation of Elton's sense of humour in musical form. It's interesting to hear Elton experimenting with synth sounds here and on the B-side of this record. That and the very clipped guitar sounds make this into the most new wavy song that Elton ever came up with. Elton was never going to pick up very many younger fans with this brand of music though. The likes of Rod and Elton had had their day as far as the kids were concerned. They had new artists to listen to like Elvis Costello. Here is I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea, for example. Good wild cat, but still, Bernie Smith, she is last year's model. The call in the town. 
And on a very similar vibe, here's I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass by Nick Lowe. I love the sound of breaking glass Especially when I'm lonely I need the noises of destruction Both of these were in the charts at the same time as Ego. Other newish artists that were in the charts then included Blondie, Devo, The Stranglers, Ian Dury, Sham69 and X-Ray Specs. That list says quite a lot about where music was headed in March and April of 1978. At the very top of the charts was Matchstalk Men and Matchstalk Cats and Dogs. Baker Street was riding high, as was Never Let Her Slip Away by Andrew Gold. So there was still cheese on the menu. And there was so much disco as well. Bee Gees, Donna Summer and Rose Royce all riding high, putting ideas into Elton's head. Elton took the failure of the single badly. Ego was just something I had lying around and I wanted to release it for a long time, he said. Unfortunately, the time wasn't right. It's been disappointing. I'd really hoped it would do well because I really liked it. There's no getting away from it. My popularity has slumped record-wise, but I realise it. More positively, Elton started to absolutely burst forth with melodies and songs at the mill and Gary Osborne had a lot of work to do to keep up with him. The sessions were extended and the band were kept on. This explosion of creativity will be tackled in at least a couple of episodes in the near future, building up to the release of A Single Man, which will also be having its 40 year anniversary this year. One song that was tackled very early, obviously, was the B-side of Ego, the beautiful Flintstone Boy. Don't you worry, he's alright with me. 
This was a true solo composition. No help from Gary here. This is all Elton. It's pretty clear to me, listening to this song, that it was written on the guitar. It might even be Elton on one of the acoustics on the recording. Elton does play the guitar. He played Love Song Live in 1986 on the guitar, and he's talked about his frustration in not being able to master the instrument. I may be wrong. It just sounds like a guitar song and not a piano song to me. It's the way the strumming pattern comes across as being so integral to the song. Also, the chords themselves. The song's based around the open chords E, A, G, E. Alongside some other ones, there's C sharp minor, G sharp minor, that's A. The real giveaway is this one. That's E. F sharp on E. Please don't talk about Flintstone Boy. That's such a learner guitar thing to do. Elton's had this to say about the difference between songs that were written on the piano versus the guitar. When you play piano, the chord structures of songs are so much different. You tend to put in more chords. Whereas when you're on a guitar, a three chord song on the guitar always sounds better than a three chord song on the piano for some reason. It's ludicrous. It has to do with the structure of the instrument. Elton really stuck his neck out with this lyric. It was a very brave thing for him to write and to release. A low key bit of subversion from Elton. In February that year, Tom Robinson had released Glad to Be Gay. Surely something that prompted Elton to take the song in the direction he did. Two years before, of course, Rod Stewart had beaten everyone to it in a slightly less authentic manner, maybe, since he isn't actually gay, with the killing of Georgie. Still, though, Elton stepped up here. I love the way he normalises the relationship. It's a totally non-salacious, completely unexceptional thing. It's a relationship song that happens to be about guys. Possibly more than two guys. Flintstone Boy is a simple and delicious slice of stone-cold country music with a haunting refrain that Joey had a love of it. It's got a pretty simple arrangement, the moogie keyboard being the most interesting aspect. As far as an A-side, B-side combination goes, this single was a very strong artistic statement from Elton. It's a shame that it didn't make much of a dent in the public consciousness they were just a bit too involved with the next new thing to hear what Elton had been cooking up during his year or so away from recording. Ego was played 37 times live with the final performance coming on the 3rd of November 1980. He played it solo during the Ray Cooper concerts in 79 and with D, Nigel, James Newton Howard, Richie Zito and Tim Rennick during the 1980 tour. 
here is a segue that I've made between the two live versions of the song, starting with the solo one from Moscow and going into a full band one from the free concert at Central Park. Step on the thin ice like this Check out the show twice nightly Oh, cause I'm on the stage tonight And if the price is right I, I will not miss the baller Lights, I crave the lights Blind me white, I need the lights Tonight Take a look at me now And take a look at my feelings As an extra, I'm in it for the killing. Inflate my ego gently. Oh, tell them heaven sent me. Oh, cause I'm so expressive and I'm so obsessed with my ego. My ego and this message. Oh, inform the press. Invite the guests. I need the press tonight.
say goodbye to 40-year anniversary Elton John then as he goes about putting together a full album of material with any thoughts of a live return still being a long way off. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Rest assured, not everything is going to be an anniversary episode. There's loads of randomry to come as well. Some serious topics and some total fluff. Thanks to everyone who's emailed me with comments and ideas. I don't want to fill the episodes with correspondence, but I will reply to anything, any comments, complaints, corrections, or anything else. Email me on eltonpodcast at gmail.com and take a look at the podcast website as well. It's eltonpodcast.podbean.com because I've just published a timeline of Elton's early years going from 1965 to 1917. It's pretty complete, bringing together most of the sources that we generally use, like setlist.fm, Garage Hangover, Keith Haywood's book, Cornflakes and Classics, Elton's Diary and the Captain Fantastic Scraps book, and a few more things. As time goes on, this is going to become a much richer resource, so check it out while it's still crap. I'd like to add a quick thank you to David Ducuto, whose excellent book, Captain Fantastic, not the same as the Tom Doyle one. The book helped me get my thoughts straight for this episode. The book was also the source of the Elton quotes that I revoiced today. I've only read the part of the book that covers the 77 to 79 period so far, but I was very impressed with the insight on show as well as the sheer number of new interviews that David was able to conduct for the book. It's a great companion to the Keith Haywood book, so that's Captain Fantastic by David DeCuto. Check it out. I'm going to leave you with a bonkers jazz version of Ego from the album Elton Exposed. This album was the brainchild of the brilliant jazz pianist Ted Howe. He brought in Joe LaBarbera along with him on drums. Joe played with Bill Evans, no less. And also John Patitucci on double bass. Interestingly, this was engineered by Matt Still. OK, try and get to grips with this. (laughs) 